Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Folks, this is going to be an interesting week. for. You're supposed to say good stuff. When John Tucker's done, you're supposed to always say good stuff. Good stuff, John Tucker. Good stuff, Justin Timberlake. That's how Paul does it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, Moving on from John Tucker, uh, also good stuff on the tech earnings front. We're going to get Netflix later this week. We're going to get a lot of uh, mid-cap names as well. And who better to dive into what to expect and all the jazz around these tech companies right now than our very own Bloomberg Technology Senior Analyst, Anurag Rana and Mandeep Singh. A lot to digest here. Uh, Anurag, I want to start with you on the big tech names here because to have a sustainable equity market rally, you have to have your Apples, your Microsofts on your side. Why aren't they right now? So the big question is what's going to be guidance for the rest of the year? Um, We all know that things are slowing down in enterprise tech spending. Cloud is gonna slow down, PC sales are bad. Uh, We even expect enterprise, you know, core software to start decelerating. But the question is, you know, how much of that is already baked into the stock price? So I think guidance is going to be extremely critical when we go on to the next earnings season from all these vendors. Hang on, when are they coming out with earnings? Uh, Microsoft's next week, Apple's the week after that. Uh, and Apple's going to be very different as well because of supply chain you know, issues we have seen uh, that uh, they, they may miss on the iPhone side. So the question really is, how's the buy side going to treat that? Because you know, in our view, whatever we le- lose in this quarter, we're going to gain back uh, in the next quarter. Mandeep, what are you uh, looking for in the companies? You c- I can never sort out which companies you guys cover. You, what, you do social media? Yes. And he, like the internet stuff? More consumer tech. And He's doing more enterprise tech. So consumer tech is very different. Enterprise tech is a code steady word steady. for, what's enterprise tech actually mean? Just business to business stuff? Business to B2B, yes. Got it, okay. So you have Alphabet, you have Meta. Uh, Uber, Airbnb, are they all coming out next week or? Uh, uh, in, in the next two weeks. And uh, look, I, I think uh, when I say, and I mentioned this before on your show, that there was a massive pull forward when it comes to a lot of consumer tech companies during COVID times. We had a period where they are resetting the comps. Next year, the comps are gonna be easier. The problem for uh, a company like Alphabet is their operating profit grew 100% in 2021. So they went from 40 billion in operating profit to 80 billion. Now that is the sort of comp, I mean, it will take them probably two years to reset that. So they pull forward two years of operating profit growth in one year during that COVID time. And I think that is a challenge for someone like uh, Alphabet to an extent Meta as well. But when you say pull forward, that means they took it from 2022 and 2023 and put it in 2021. Yes. It, is it really the case? I mean, are the it, 
the 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 revenue they get from ads, right? For the most part, ad yeah. spending. It's not like companies that were spending a lot in 2021 are going to not spend in 2022 or 2023. So you have a confluence of negative factors right now, uh, notably the Apple IDFA changes. That was a $10 billion drag on Meta's revenue for 2022. Same thing. It's not going to dissipate anytime soon. Then ad pricing in general is coming down because we are headed for slower growth or probably a recession. So during times like this, ad pricing compresses. It will bounce back, but it's very cyclical. And then businesses in general, small businesses, which is the bulk of Meta's ad spend, they are pulling back again at slow growth times. And that's what I mean by pull forward because during the COVID phase, 2020 and 2021, Meta's revenue grew almost uh, you know, 30% average. The reason why that happened is small businesses did very well. It was all online. They were spending a lot of money on ads to acquire customers. Well, you're running into tough comps, plus businesses are pulling back because ad spending is the easiest thing to pull back on when times are tough. So um, Anurag, you know, we were talking earlier, there's a story in the Bloomberg about um, executives at Davos, their expectations are for a horrendous and awful recession, but that's because the survey was done in October and November, <laughs> right? In December and January, we've turned a lot more positive. Yeah. Um, is that the case for these companies as well? So typically what happens is, you know, tech spending is sometimes driven by the sentiment that we see in the NASDAQ, how the NASDAQ performs. Now, we, I did this correlation many, many years ago, but if you look at it just on the spending side of it, last five years have been phenomenal for software spending. You know, the top 20 software companies grew at an average 20% uh, in that time frame. So it's going to be very difficult to come up with that level of performance again this year. Now, our big thesis is that whatever we lose this year, you know, we will recover it the next year or the year after, depending on how long the slowdown is. And, and partially the reason why we think is, is um, you know, we think there are still a lot of very old systems out there that need to be upgraded. I mean, point in time, you know, Southwest, the FAA, all those things. I mean, legacy IT spending dominates total IT spending. So all those companies slowly and slowly need to upgrade their systems, which is a bull case for software, but perhaps not in 2023. Well, that's exactly where I want to go. I think we had Mandeep on uh, Bloomberg Surveillance Radio months ago, and I remember you coming up with a stat, uh, and it was something like in the next 10 years, I think it's like, I can't remember if it was billions or trillions, but it was like four or five billion or trillion, I can't remember, I know those are different numbers, yeah. um, spending on cloud infrastructure. So I'm wondering, and that's something you're hearing from these bank earnings as well, that sure, some of these compensation expenses are coming down, but the tech expenses are coming up. How long does that bull case or that tailwind that Anurag was just talking about take to actually play out? Well, I would say there are certain things that are secular in nature in this market. Cloud spending is one of them. Yeah. And that, when, when these secular trends play out, they play out 10, 20 years. It's going to take years before we are fully migrated to cloud. And plus, there is a lot of new innovation going on. A lot of AI, you know, machine learning is being done on cloud. These are, uh, I mean, very expensive workloads mm -hmm. to run. ChatGPT. I was, it, to, I was uh, waiting to see uh, who would bring uh, that up uh, first. A one-month bill of ChatGPT would be way above then how much a traditional IT cost to run. So yeah. that's where I think cloud infrastructure is a real secular tailwind. 
And look, there are certain structural headwinds for a lot of these companies, and that's where you're going to pick winners and losers is which ones are exposed to the secular trends and which ones aren't. So let's go near term then, Mandeep. In the next uh, few weeks when we get some of these earnings roll out, who's going to get it right? Who's going to get it wrong? I think you've seen a lot of negative revisions already. So yeah. a name like Snapchat has seen top line come down, estimates come down by about 40%. Consensus numbers are down a lot. Yeah. Same thing for a lot of other small caps like Roblox. Now with large caps, Google estimates are down 10%. That doesn't mean they're going to crush it or the you know the sentiment will be positive after the report. So that's where you have to really match how far the expectations have come down. They haven't come down and uh, like for a name like Airbnb. Now I do think there was a pull forward even with Airbnb's growth because yeah. of, of reopening. It lasted two years. Sure. Guess what? There will be a slowdown period after that, and I think that's where uh, they're exposed. We've been waiting to hear about this uh, a lot in the last six months as well. We saw this in Apple and Microsoft as well, that this slowdown uh, is already here. To what extent are we going to see more pain in the first quarter? Or is this, a, is this a 2022 story? So the way we look at it right now, the estimates look fair. Um, we don't see a bigger downdraft on that, which is why I said uh, guidance going into next quarter or next this earnings is going to be very critical. If the, these companies are a come, they come a report and able to match the expectations of the, the buy side and the sell side, and then you could see them reverse, you know, the trend of the, the, the stock prices going downwards. However, if they come back and say, you know, things are really getting even worse, then you have another leg down. But one of the big things that I've said is, you know, for us, the big, uh, you know, I'm not truly concerned about the the length of the cloud cycle or the, the funding behind it. The, I, I'm, I'm very happy or very comfortable about it. But what I do not know that where the tenure is going to be by the end of the year. If the tenure is around where it is, then tech stocks should be fine. But if it starts to go up, inflation creeps back again, then tech is going to have a horrendous uh, second half. So it's a, it, there is a lot that's tied up with the interest rates rather than just the uh, the earnings side. The operating the business. What, what are the typical valuations that you see on the enterprise side? So it depends on who you're looking at. And you know, you look at somebody like a Microsoft 18, 19 times, you know, a couple of years ago, it was 30 times earnings. But that the, all the, all the, you could say the squeeze in the valuation has to do with the, with the 10 year climbing up quite a bit. You could say the same thing about uh, Apple. Apple's now at 18, 19 times. It used to be over 30 times for a, for a while. So if 10 year keeps on going up, that number keeps on com coming down. I mean, that's really where we are at this point. Anurag, uh, sorry, Mandeep, you, uh, what kind of valuations do you see? Or does it matter in the companies you cover because they don't necessarily make profits? Well, uh, <laughs> yes, that is a factor. But for a name like Alphabet, you know, you have to ask yourself, when will they grow operating profit? Because that is going to determine the floor in terms of valuation. Right now, the market isn't clear. They aren't believing the consensus numbers that they can grow operating profit even low single digit. If they prove that, I, I think that may be very well afloat. All right, Mandeep Singh, Senior Analyst for Technology at Bloomberg Intelligence, Anurag Raga, also a tech analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks very much. Always great to round table. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Speaking of 420, uh, we are going to talk about weed right now. Chris... Violas, the CEO of Blaze, joins us uh, to talk about a technology platform that um, they uh, that they operate, um, or, or or at least uh, get to businesses to operate, in order to sell uh, marijuana products. And I think it's such a fascinating story. We cover this a lot in this program because it's like we're watching the beginning of an industry, you know, the end of prohibition. And we can see uh, the kind of revenue that this generates, not just for the businesses, but also for states. Well, and, you recently covered this, right? The very first. Well, the, the, first, the first one in New York, um, and I believe they use Blaze technology. Chris, uh, let's get over to Chris right now. Chris Violas, CEO of Blaze. Tell us about your product. What, what, uh, what do you offer that's helping this budding industry? Matt, well, thank you, Creed. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, but to get to the point, Blaze is a retail uh, point of sale platform, really powering about 16% of North America dispensaries today. So anything from inventory control to checking out and actually facilitating that transaction um, to the compliance that goes on behind it, that's all Blaze powering these, these beautiful retailers that are doing such great work, including Housing Works. Yeah, Housing Works is... Of course, the charity that opened the first marijuana dispensary, recreational dispensary in New York. And there are, I think, 23 other states where marijuana is legal. Um, But it's not federally. And that presents a problem for these retailers in terms of taking credit cards, in terms of, you know, the the payment point systems. How how does that work? How do you kind of get around the federal law? Yeah, it's obviously there's a, a conflict there. So when it comes to these payment types, really there's only a few options we have. Um, as with anything we do, we wanna be as open and transparent and compliant as possible. So credit cards are off the table. We don't touch that except for in Canada where it is federally legal. But when we're talking about the US, we really only have two options at this point. Um, obviously we can take cash, I guess three options, that's one. Uh, the second would be ACH. So you know, this is really likened to when you go on to uh, Venmo and you connect your bank account um, and start to send money either directly to a, uh, a person or directly to another business. We can certainly facilitate that today. That's a direct to direct uh, type of transaction. And then the second is our Blaze Pay program, which is a pin debit based solution where the, uh, the user, the consumer, go ahead and insert their card with a chip. Uh, enter in their PIN number, and then from there we can directly uh, transact against that specific bank account. 
So uh, how does that work more specifically? I noticed that at Empire, at the Empire Cannabis Club, if you uh, ring up $135, right, they'll Mm -hmm. debit you for $140 and then actually give you the $5 in change. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, so that's a... That's a different solution than what we uh, like to, to use here at Blaze. That is called cashless ATM. And essentially what they're doing with that specific solution is they're actually turning that debit terminal into what we call an ATM. And so there's your roundup, right? Each time you withdraw from a uh, an ATM machine, it's got to be specific uh, denominations. In this case, you know, by, uh, by five. So by 140, you'll get $5 back on that transaction. That being said, um, while that solution is functional, it's not our uh, what we consider to be the most optimal solution. Uh, it requires that dispensary carry more cash on hand to facilitate the cash back, um, but it is relatively straightforward. It's that same concept of a direct withdrawal from that bank. So it is a, a, an option there. So then when you're looking at the long-term uh, for, for your own mm-hmm. company, what kind of timeline are you looking at where you don't have to have these workarounds when it comes to payments? A pretty great question. I wish I had that magic ball. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we feel that with such explosive growth in this industry, we're all trying to be compliant, both the operators and the service providers that that obviously service them. So my hope is in the next you know three to four years, um, we, we, we see some uh, movement. Obviously, there's talks from the Safe Banking Act, obviously not going through this last quarter. But in general, we are hopeful um, we really feel like Canada has also, you know, set the stage in terms of normalizing that uh, the payment systems. So we're hopeful. Um, that being said, we still have a long way to go, and I wouldn't say we have a direct line of sight just yet. But does it annoy you that we haven't gotten safe banking, or is it actually better for your business? Because yeah, that's- hear me out. Uh, well, or maybe you know, this is clear to you. The longer it doesn't pass, um, the more these dispensaries need you and you get to kind of dig your heels in, in terms of market share. Yeah, look, it's a great question. Obviously, we're balancing both the business uh, of Blaze as well as supporting our retailers. At the end of the day, though, this business was started by myself and then a few other founders. We are former operators. So, you know, our ethos here is really to enable those retailers and make sure they're as successful as possible. So. I do hope we can reduce the cash. I do hope we can uh, reduce some of the workaround. So yes, while that may not uh, might not help our margins directly, I think it's the right thing for the industry and the right thing to really move this forward. Um, you see anywhere outside of cannabis, folks being able to use Apple Pay and some of these really cool techniques to transact and obviously reduce that friction at checkout. That is really our main goal here is to help enable retailers to sell more and part of that's reducing the friction wherever the consumer wants to check out and whatever they want to check out with. So what kind of opposition are are you facing right now? I mean, on your day to day, how much pushback are you really getting? Um, with regards to the, the payment solutions or just uh, right. uh, competitors? Uh, yeah, not, not much. I mean, look, these operators understand that they're in a, a difficult situation. It's really about finding that local banking provider that first off will go ahead and have a depository account with you and be able to, to uh, just facilitate normal day-to-day banking needs, but at the same time, um, being able to supply not just the payment side, but we also have Blaze Capital, which is an inventory financing solution. So we understand there's a lot of barriers for these uh, for these retailers. So wherever we can use our economies to scale and you know our 1,500 plus dispensaries to help benefit and bring a solution forward, we obviously want to do that. So I would say between us and the, and the retailers, there's not much friction. Um, they're looking for help 
And so whatever we can do to provide them with some assistance, I mean, they're usually pretty open to it. Any plans for an IPO? Uh, what's the capital <laughs> structure look like? Yeah, no, we're private today. Um, have raised just under $19 million, um, across the board, uh, all through um, uh, VC uh, type of funding. Um, but, you know, as with everybody in this economy, we're really focused on profitability. And so we do have line of sight this year to profitability. And we want to control our future. And so when the markets do turn um, do turn around and look upward for an IPO and look positive, you know, it's definitely something that we're not going to rule out. But at this point, you know, I'd say it's been a uh, benefit for us to, to stay private mm. and continue to execute on our plan. All right, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Fascinating stuff. Chris Violas there, CEO of Blaze. They help cannabis dispensaries sell more weed. Let's bring in our guests right now to talk about what's going on in these markets. Uh, a lot of it dictated by bank earnings. We've just seen the final of the Big Six um, report. Brent Schutte joins us, Chief Investment Strategist from Northwestern Mutual. Uh, Chief Investment Officer, sorry, from Northwestern Mutual, as well as Allison Williams, Senior Global Banks and Asset Managers Analysts from Bloomberg Intelligence. Brent, let me first ask you uh, your take on the bank earnings, um, Goldman Sachs falling by the most since, well, in a year, I guess, today after missing um, revenue estimates. Uh, how do you see this batch of bank earnings um, changing your strategy or informing your strategy? Yeah, I don't think it's changing it too much. I mean, to me, the macro, so what's happening in the global economy matters much, much more than earnings. Not to say that they're not important. They do kind of represent who's going to win and who's going to lose from a relative perspective. But overall, the most important thing right now is where is the economy headed in 2023? Where is inflation headed and what is the Fed going to do? And I think that the, the, the better tone that you've had to the start of the year is because you are seeing inflation come down uh, and certainly expectations of Fed future tightening is coming down uh, against the backdrop of an economy that hasn't yet fallen into recession. I think that's where you're seeing optimism. Allison, hop on in here because, as Matt pointed out, the what feels like the driving story, at least for the Dow, is going to be those bank earnings. How much of what we've gotten from them is a sector-specific story as opposed to a macroeconomic story? Yeah, and both, I mean, they're going in completely different directions, right? Morgan Stanley is up 7%. Yeah, I think the news today is a little bit more company specific. Um, and to your point, Matt, it is interesting, the, the economy and performance. And that is because Goldman Sachs reporting a comp ratio, which is uh, the highest in several years. Uh, Solomon had warned that the cost to compete was not coming in um, as much as would be expected, um, but perhaps uh, the results were even more uh, dramatic than we expected in terms of the increase in comp. Comp was down for the year, um, but only something like 15% while revenue was down 20%. And so I think comp and headcount, that's that's really the story of Goldman. Provision for credit costs, which is a broad macro macroeconomic indicator, was a bit worse. I'll come back to that in one second. For Morgan Stanley, it was really the wealth business, which is the, the crown jewel for that company outperforming, if you will, um, and, and sort of negative expectations coming into the quarter. Net interest income, for which we heard about last week, I, I don't know if I would call that macro. I mean, it is tied to monetary policy, um, but net interest income coming in softer for most of the biggest lenders, and that's really just due to the costs of their deposits rising. Think of that as their cost of goods sold. Rates are going up. They've gotten the benefit. Now they have to start passing some of that on to customers. Morgan Stanley's net interest income did hold up a little bit better. That so, feels pretty macro. I mean, 
that broader theme we've been talking about with bank CEOs for years. Uh, I was stationed in Germany for the past six years, and they really complained about the lack of net interest income and low rates. I mean, ZERP or NERP was really problematic for these banks. Brent, you know, it's a point that I think is really interesting. We can get kind of back to business as usual now that we get away from extraordinary monetary policy. Does that mean something to you? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, to me, I still think we're going to have a recession this year. And so, I, you know, I, I do think uh, that the Fed is, you know, intently focused on the labor market and not going to stop until they actually see uh, the labor market crack, which I, I, I guess I don't know if it's good or bad. I think it's probably closer than further away. Um, but certainly the the large rate hikes are, are a thing of the past. And I think they're going to start coming down. Uh, and if you think about the last couple of years, I mean, we had maximum policy to the upside. And then I think last year was maximum policy to the downside. I think this is a bit of a transition year where we slow the hikes and hopefully stop the hikes uh, when the labor market does crack. Um, but certainly, I, th I think from a volatility standpoint, that will bring down volatility, especially towards the end of the year, when we finally see that, yes, we are likely to have a recession, but it will be short, mild, and uneven. So you mentioned macro back and forth. Some sectors will win. Some sectors will lose. Uh, and, and I think the, the other side of this is, is better days ahead. But certainly until we get to that point, uh, I think you're going to see a back and forth from a volatility perspective, but not as much as it was last year when the Fed was at, certainly on the elevator up uh, on the rate hike cycle. Loan loss provisions, Allison, you said you get back to. I think this is, well, for me, I'm watching very closely to see uh, how bearish these banks are in terms of their recession forecast. Can you read that? Uh, can you read that into big loan loss provisions? Generally, uh, the provisions that we've seen, um, a lot of the a lot of the provisions has been due to loan growth because card is the seasonally strongest in the fourth quarter. We saw balances. It's also the highest charge off rate. So that generally portends to have somewhat higher provisions. We have seen, uh, I would say that the banks in general have signaled some weakening of an economic outlook, but nothing dramatic. Uh, Citigroup saying on Friday that they were reserving to sort of a 5 to 5.1 percent um, unemployment rate. So um, some positioning there in terms of uh, and giving you some detail around around their outlook. Um, Imagine a five and a half percent unemployment rate. Well, 5 to 5.1 percent. Oh, 5.1. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but still. Um, and uh, so I think that and, and JP Morgan has said, you know, that five to six percent unemployment would be five to six billion of reserve building for them. They did reserve uh, build reserves by about one point four billion this quarter. About one billion was that was consumer that relates to some of the growth that I mentioned. Um, but they said that part of the other part of that is marking to market towards those you know, other expectations, just as we're seeing some weakening. So not calling for that yet, but just reverting towards that. So let's let's fold in what, what Brent was just talking about. When it comes to what the sector as a whole is trading off of, is it really taking its cue, I mean, naturally from the bond market, but is it taking its cue from something like uh, the 210 spread, for example, and then compressed margins in that direction? Or is it taking its cue from, say, capped yields as a result of Fed cuts priced into the market. What what does the stock trade off of? The stocks tend to trade off of twos, tens. That's not really the yield curve that impacts. That's at most meaningful to the earnings, but that tends to be the biggest um, indicator for the stocks. I think in, in general, when they've been reacting to, to earnings, it has been the initial reaction has been to the net interest income. We talked a little bit about some of the reactions um, today, I do think that in, in the months ahead, really the focus is on 
um, unemployment and credit costs, even though these banks will argue, and, and part of the reason why they talk about how their reserves is to show, look, we have like our, the pre-tax, pre-provision profit, so profit before these losses is so strong, it's well covered, um, the capital is, is very strong, they've built that up, um, it, it's still uncertain and it's hard for bank stocks to outperform as you're sort of going into things. They, they need to sort of see the other side or see things getting better. Brent, how does the uh, China reopening or the better than expected numbers out of Europe influence your, your position? I mean, have you gotten less bearish in the last few months? Because it seems like others have, have shifted. Yeah, I mean, I've been optimistic because inflation is coming down. Uh, certainly, China reopening could put upward pressure on commodities. Uh, but I think in general, in the U.S., you are seeing inflation pull back. And I, I don't know if people have made enough of this, but if you look at all in CPI, uh, less shelter, so the part that's lagging the 33 percent, it's actually negative over the last six months. And so you're starting to see that inflation come down, which to me is still the most important variable that's out there. I think it accelerates. But as I mentioned before, I do think you're going to kind of shift to recession worries because I do think you're going to start seeing the labor market crack just a bit. But tying it into to what was just said, I think the other side of this is near rather than further away because I think inflation will fall quite a bit, which will allow the Federal Reserve to potentially pivot if they need to, to keep any such recession short and mild, which I think is the most important variable for anybody's outlook. How, how deep do you think the recession is? How long do you think it lasts? And I just don't think it's either deep or long, uh, which informs kind of a positive outlook towards the back half of, of the year, which unfortunately I think is consensus, uh, but certainly I, I think still likely given that I think inflation uh, is starting to crater. But to be clear, you don't expect the Fed to cut rates this year, do you? Uh, this is where I'm not, I'm not for sure. I mean, this is where I think it's more important that I think they'll be able to pause. And then if they need to, to keep any recession from being deeper, they will be able to cut rates because inflation expectations are actually mm. right where they want them. I, I find it ironic that we came into this time period, I think people forget that the Fed was trying to get inflation expectations up. Yep. And the five to 10 year universal emissions at 3%, that is exactly where it was when times were more normal, not the past five or six years we're worried about deflation. So All this right. is where I think the Fed needs to cut our stop. All right, Brent Schutte from Northwestern Mutual, Allison Williams from Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks very much for joining us. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's bring in Ira Jersey right now, uh, Bloomberg Chief Rates Correspondent for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, uh, what do you make of the change in, um, I guess, perception? We've gone from, we just heard Dennis Gartman say, bearish to at least mildly bullish. And we've changed our expectations a bit for the Fed as well. We've even had Fed speakers come out and say, you know what, 25 is cool in February. <laughs> yeah, we, we've. I, I was expecting a downshift in after the December meeting. Actually, you, you know, the the Fed and Fed speakers have been talking about the fact that they need to kind of calibrate where ultimately the Fed fund rate is going to end up. And I think we are nearing that point. You know, then markets certainly pricing for you know two, maybe three more, um, three more hikes of, of 25 basis points. So. So, so it's not a big surprise, I think, that they're going to go 25 in, in, uh, at the February meeting. Um, you, you know, today's price action is interesting in and of itself because initially we were, um, we were initially bear steepening and now we're bull steepening. So, so two-year yields, you know, have, have rallied quite a lot in, in over the last couple of hours. And uh, in particular, after that Empire survey, it's like the lack of news is just pushing the market around quite a lot. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. That Empire survey, it was like the worst since May of 2020, the worst data going back to, I think, the global financial crisis as well, that coming from uh, Cameron Kreiss on our Markets Live mm -hmm. blog as well. But do we really need to take stock in that data set? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think a lot of the, the volatility we're seeing is position-based, and, and you just have people who don't want to take big positions one way or the other, so you wind up seeing outsized moves. Uh, even when you get, you know, data that is kind of second tier. I mean, I'd say that the Empire Survey typically doesn't move the Treasury market more than a basis point or two um, after it's released. But but I do think, yes, it was very weak. You saw the inflation component, so the prices paid and the prices received component um, fall significantly. But but as someone noted to me earlier today, um, we, we had this, this head fake in – uh, the Empire survey last September as well, and and things just bounced right back. So, so, so I don't know if we can take a lot out of this one number, but but that seems to be one of the big drivers of the market at least today. So, Ira Matt Miller, in addition to buying one ticket for himself and one ticket for his motorcycle in Europe, also says, you know, look, the Federal Reserve is going to be the bigger meeting. Um, next to the ECB in about two weeks' time. But Ira, can I take the flip side on that? Is it fair to say that maybe the ECB is kind of the bigger spotlight right now? Well, I think I think they're almost equally as important, and certainly from a market volatility standpoint, I think that the, the Ira, ECB... that's like saying you're picking your you can't pick your favorite child. Come on. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the, the Fed's my favorite child. I'm a U.S. rate strategist, but um, but but I think the ECB is is a little bit more doubtful. I think at this point, um, it's mostly baked in the cards that, that the Fed's going to go uh, 25, and you look at the market pricing right now, and it's, it's more or less 25 with a small chance of, of 50. Um, whereas the ECB, uh, people just aren't sure not only you know, how quickly they're going to go, but how high they're actually going to ultimately hike. And, and I think the, 
um, th- there's a lot of uncertainty around uh, around Europe because their economy is much weaker than the U.S. economy, but their inflation continues to b- run much higher than the U.S. In- than U.S. inflation. So, th- so it- I think there's just a lot more doubt around what's going on in Europe, and and that's going to generate more volatility. Um, you-, you know, not only in things like German bonds and, and the periphery, but also in uh, uh, also in global. Uh, developed market rates, so here and, and even Japan. And and Japan's an interesting, <laughs> interesting <think>? as well. <laughs> yes. I mean, they got to be the most interesting, um, you know, if not the most biggest mover. Yeah, yeah. so huge, well, huge mover relative, right, Matt? Because one of the things that, that remember that uh, the, Jap- the Bank of Japan had been doing is buying 10-year Japanese government bonds um, at 10 basis points, right? So, so they, they didn't let it float, and then they, they let it float a little bit more up to 25 basis points. Now it's 50 basis points. And right now, as of overnight, um, 10-year Japanese government bonds actually are trading above half a percent, uh, above 50 basis points. And, and that means that, that the Bank of Japan is going to have to intervene and come in and buy more bonds. Again. But there's a lot of talk they're going to get rid of that buying program altogether, and that could even generate even more volatility. What happens then, the Ira? Because, uh, you know, the, the rate's been above 50 basis points for three of the last four trading sessions not including today, and so I guess four out of five now, and they've bought more than $100 billion worth of JGBs in the last four sessions. So what happens if they just let go? Yeah, so, so I think that you wind up seeing, you know, maybe something not dissimilar to what happened in uh, – uh, in the gilt market uh, oh. last year, where you wind up seeing maybe a 40 or 50 basis point sell-off in a hurry in 10-year uh, 10-year Japanese notes. But but interestingly, I, I think and and look, I'm not an expert on the Japanese government bond market, but what I what I do ha- know and what I have seen is that 30-year Japanese government bond yields have gone up significantly because that's not what the Bank of Japan was targeting, and they haven't been buying that sector. So anyone who needed to hedge long-term interest rate risk was selling 30 years. So I think you could have this weird dynamic where 30-year Japanese yields might actually rally a little bit as people start selling more 10 years. And you can actually see the 10-year, 30-year curve actually uh, actually flatten quite a lot with the 10-year sector really underperforming mm. uh, on that curve. And, th- and that'll ge- generate volatility globally. Now, I think ultimately right. in the U.S. it might be worth 10 or 15 basis points in, in the 10-year, but, we'll, uh, but, but, but that'll stabilize and we'll focus on domestic issues here. Ira Jersey, our chief U.S. rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.